That was the Bill Evans Trio, and this is the Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm your summer host, Amanda Yuli, and I'm sitting in for T. Hetzel, the regular host of the Living Writer Show. Um, we are here this afternoon. It's July 26th, 2018, and we are live in the studio with Anna Clark. Thanks for being here, Anna. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Oh, we're thrilled. Um, your book just came out last it week. Did. It did. July, July. 10th, and... I don't know. It's amazing. It's three-dimensional. It exists in the world. It's incredible. I'm We're so excited. We're holding it in our hands <laughs> yeah, right I'm now. I'm looking at it. <laughs> um, I'm going to read a little bit um, from the, the jacket of your book about your biography so our listeners can get to know you. Um, and then we'll have you speak about um, your book out this July 2018, The Poison City. Anna Clark is a journalist living in Detroit. Her writing has appeared in Elle, The New York Times, the Washington Post, Politico, and the Columbia Journalism Review, among other publications. Anna edited a Detroit anthology, a Michigan notable book, and she has been a writer in residence in Detroit public schools as part of the Inside Out Literary Arts Program. She has also been a Fulbright Fellow in Nairobi, Kenya, and a Knight Wallace Journalism Fellow at the University of Michigan, where we are right now. This I feel afternoon. right at home. <laughs> uh, welcome back to Ann Arbor, Anna, and thanks for sharing the afternoon with us. Yeah, this is great. I'm really happy to be here. We're thrilled. Would you like to sort of, for our listeners that don't know um, about your book, which is called The Poison City, uh, maybe you could introduce it a little bit Sure. For us. Well, uh, I'm a journalist, and this is a reported nonfiction book about the Flint water crisis, but it's also trying to put the story of this man-made disaster in context of uh, how, how this city became so vulnerable in the first place. So looking at... Uh, you know, decades of urban policy and um, uh, racism and um, all the other factors that uh, came together, I think, to um, create a kind of perfect storm mm -hmm. um, where and, 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 and really ask some questions, too, about why, you know, we have cities all across the country where we have such concentrated poverty, usually with communities of color, the majority of, of residents mm -hmm. and why we don't feel uncomfortable about that until something as dramatic as a citywide poisoning through its public drinking water system happens. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I wanted it to have, um, I wanted to tell this story in a way that really centered uh, the community in Flint, um, these amazing, uh, vibrant, you know, and, 
engaged uh, people um, who had been for years like doing all kinds of amazing things um, to uh, raise up their community. One that has been, I think, rather beleaguered for decades. Even, yeah, even before yeah. this like water situation happened. Right. And there, and you know, Flint is genuinely i'd say objectively a beautiful town you know there's like a lot of wonderful um you know things to do and resources and anchor institutions and natural uh wildlife you know and it's a beautiful place there's reasons people love it there's reasons mm -hmm. they call it home and um this is so even 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 when it's lost so much population and so much industry and is contending with um you know a real uh dangerous um disinvestment in public services. Um, and so all of this I wanted to, you know, bring forth while also trying to make some sense out of this um, very strange story uh, that captured the not just national attention, but I think international attention for a while there. Why is it a strange story? That I, I don't it know. It is a strange story. It's so I, weird. Now that you, you can't even that. believe it happened. Like, it's, like yeah. I mean, I've been paying attention to this for years now. Um, and talking to so many people about it. Mm -hmm. And still, when I think about it, I'm just shocked. Like, how did this even happen? It's so strange. It's, you know, every decision, you're like, why did people make that decision? <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, so, I mean, just the, for, I'm sure, you know, this is, uh, you know, here in Ann Arbor, there's listeners who are quite familiar with what happened. But just in case, um, you know, the, oh, yeah, the gist yeah. of what happened was that, you know, the city of Flint had been served by Lake Huron water from the Detroit water system for about 50 years. And the water quality was good, but the, it was also very, very expensive. Um, and it was very expensive for a number of reasons, um, not least the fact that this is a city that has lost more than half of its population, you know, so they have, mm -hmm. you have fewer ratepayers to support an infrastructure system that's just as big as it ever was. Which is reminiscent of some of Detroit's struggles. Right. You know, this is, a, and then shrinking cities all over the country. This is like, it's not as um, unusual as we might wish it were. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and, and you know, because there'd been a lot of deferred maintenance and a number of other financial challenges you know the city was even losing almost half of its water just through leaks just through leaks you know wow. and that's raising the, rates, the rates up right right it's and there are a number of other things as well but so under a state appointed emergency manager the city decided to switch uh its uh water source and they were going to join this brand new water system that wasn't yet built and while it was being built uh uh the city, again, under an emergency manager, decided it was going to temporarily use um, the Flint River for drinking water and treat it at, at its own plant. But what went wrong was that the plant did not receive the upgrades needed to treat a much more complex drinking water source. And it wasn't treated with something called corrosion control, which is uh, federal law, you know, and it's federal law because we need to keep our aging pipes from disintegrating into our water and contaminating it. Um, so without it... Because those pipes are lead in some cases. Right. <laughs> or in many cases. And, yeah, and, yeah. In too many cases. We have lead pipes all over the country. It's how um, the water system was built. It was like the standard. And the not just in poorer communities and wealthier communities. And I don't think we've fully reckoned with it. Like we... No. Lead pipes are no longer legal to you know put in for new construction but they're still there <laughs> and millions of us are drinking water through them and plumbing fixtures not just the pipes itself every day you know yeah. and while we can mitigate it with stuff like corrosion control it's not you know i really think we need to um you know drum up some political will to really just get it out because mm -hmm. there's really no 
you know, it's important. It's the world's best known neurotoxin. Like we should not be drinking water through it. But it yeah. seems almost insurmountable from what I understand from your book and other sources. Lead it's, pipes are yeah. pervasive. They're pervasive. <laughs> it's just it's, It'd be a huge amount of money and it's also very complex, right? Yeah. And this is why nobody wants to deal with it. Yeah. Um, but uh, there are communities that have done it and I, including Lansing, Michigan and Madison, Wisconsin. Um, they, they did this before there was a public emergency just because it was the right thing to do. Um, and if they created a kind of roadmap that I would like to think that other communities might start um, uh, looking at themselves. I was stunned when I read that in your book, that those two communities had done uh, what they needed to do with lead pipes, essentially removed all the lead and replaced them with other materials, right? right. So I guess I was stunned by the number. There are two cities. <laughs> is it is it happening in other places or is it really just those two leaders in the At the time... That the Flint water crisis broke, those were the only, they're like the only two major cities that I knew of and could find anyone that, and else that knew of. Um, yeah. If there were more, they're keeping yeah. it quiet for some reason. Okay. <laughs> um, there, I think the water, the Flint water crisis did um, catch some attention though. And, and I know there are yeah. other communities who have also been struggling with some water issues that are uh, beginning to look at this. I think Kalamazoo is um, replacing a lot of pipes now. Michigan, in a new law in Michigan, there's supposed to be a, you know, full lead pipe replacement in a few decades, um, partly inspired by the water crisis. I mean, there's a lot of open questions, but mm-hmm. I think I think what, if anything good came out of the water crisis, I think it's a little bit of a wake up call to not take our drinking water for granted. And I think that water coming out of your tap is one of those basic things. I mean, it's probably even more basic than electricity or something that we all just think is there. And we assume it's safe. You assume it's safe. And this is like, and that's actually speaks to what a triumph our public drinking water systems are. I mean, it's something we can really be proud of. I mean, it has been transformative for public health. You know, we have saved so many lives by making drinking water accessible and cleaner than it was 200 years ago. And, um, and that's wonderful. That's fantastic. There are some hard-earned lessons along the way, not least the fact that all people need access to clean water for it to work, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and not just some people. That's yeah. just how public health works. Uh, and, and, and I think um, it's a gift that we've been able to take it for granted, but, we, you know, they, it can't go without us paying attention to it forever. <laughs> without drinking water, unlike electricity, without drinking water, we literally die. Yeah. So... I think we should get it right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think you're right. Um, this is the Living Writer Show. We're speaking to Anna Clark, who's author of The Poison City, um, just out this July 2018. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your personal co- connection to the city of Flint. Obviously, you've built a deeper connection in the last several years writing this book, but you have a little connection that goes before that, right? I I guess I do. And I didn't even know it until I was already working on this book. <laughs> I, I mean, in some part. ways, yeah, in some ways, I felt um, a connection to Flint simply because I just recognized a lot there. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been living and working in Detroit since 2007. Um, I grew up in St. Joseph, Michigan, where um, and where my family's home ground is in Benton Harbor, right across the river. These are cities that have a lot of the exact same challenges that Flint has. And my own family, like, grew up struggling and trying to make ends meet. And that, um, you know, so when I go into Flint, I feel like things feel, you know, things feel familiar to me. There are things I've thought of before um, and paid attention to before or struggled with myself. Um, but, yeah, like, while I was working on this, I found out that my 
grandmother was born in Flint, and she was born to uh, uh, one of the United Auto Workers who uh, participated in the sit-down strike in the 1930s, which is amazing. I had no idea. I, I don't know why this wasn't a story that was passed down through the generations the for some reason. History re- in your I know. family <laughs> of social justice. Yeah, people just kind of people just kind of like neglected that story until I was like, "Hey, I've been working on this book about Flint." My grandma was like. Did you know? And I was like, no, I didn't know. Why didn't anybody <laughs> tell me this? That's amazing. <laughs> but yeah, she was born. She was born literally during the sit-down strike. So my great-grandfather had to get like sort of special permission to exit the plant um, under some secrecy, I think, because it didn't want to look like he was sort of, you know, taking crossing the casually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like crossing the line and, and you uh-huh. know, bailing out on this, you know, uh, 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 uh effort that wasn't yet successful. Um, But anyway, I love that. I love that story. It makes me um, feel connected to the city in a whole different way. And now you are even more so (laughs) as you've published The Poison City. Um, Well, thank you for that explanation. I think we'll take a short break and hear one of the songs you chose. Um, I think we'll hear Vulnerable. Yes. There's a pain in my shoulders, there's a pain in my neck I'm jumping, I'm shifting, I haven't slept yet Tumbling in my hoopty, rum alone in my street It's only five minutes, but it feels like an eternity Pulling in that parking space, I always seem to claim Sitting another five minutes with a blank look on my face It's hard for me to move, and I tend to lose my will When the things I'm asked to do don't jive with how I feel This is The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. We're here with Anna Clark. Hello. Hi. And tell me why you chose that song, if you, if you will. Sure. Um, well, first of all, the songs I picked for this show, some of them were a mix of songs that I will forever associate with writing this book. <laughs> and um, But this one I picked because I wanted to uh, showcase... Um, uh, a contemporary Flint artist. I mean, the the city of Flint has a very rich history of uh, music and art making of all sorts. Um, uh, has a there's a lot of fantastic writers who are came from there and are still there. Um, and this one by Tunde Olenarian is uh, he's I mean he's kind of making quite a name for himself. He's kind of he's kind of hot. He is. Yeah, <laughs> he's a big like, deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so and and so I, I I you know I'm excited for that. I'm excited for how imaginative he is and how visionary he is and how uh-huh. he takes risks with his art. And 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 I picked this particular song about you know called Vulnerable because I th- I think about that. Uh, that's that's a word that's kind of stayed with me when I think about um, about Flint itself and the people in it and how they've had to cope with um, being made vulnerable and how uh, how they've um, you know you know how how they take care of each other uh, mm-hmm. and, and and cultivate their community um, in the midst of a lot of challenges. Thank you for explaining that. <laughs> um, 
You know, when I read the book, and of course, I'm a local person who reads the newspaper and who is sort of, uh, you know, I felt up on this issue before I picked up your book. Um, But what was striking to me about it was the beautiful way that you made it one cohesive narrative. And I think that for people who live here, who may read the paper and hear various public radio stations or other news reports, you're getting different information. Sometimes the reports were conflicting. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes there was blame being shifted, of course. Um, but then there were so many little pieces that you were able to put together into one, I'm not holding the book anymore, how many page <laughs> narrative um, that all sort of hung together. And that seemed like such a feat uh, on your part and really such um, a valuable thing for local people who care about this issue to really dig into, to really understand start to finish. Um, and you start at the very beginning mm-hmm. with, <laughs> with the settlement of uh, the Flint area mm-hmm. in, in the earliest its earliest days. Um, and you go all the way through. You told me before the show you wrote up until about May of 2018 <laughs> for this July 2018 relief. Um, so... It's a very comprehensive, long look. Um, how did you achieve that? How did you sort that all out and make it one story? That's a good question because I was really feeling my way through it um, blindly, you know, for a while too. Because um, I needed to figure stuff out too. Um, I, I I had covered some of the Flint story uh, through articles that I'd written, different angles. Um, mm-hmm. But one reason I was really excited to about the opportunity to do a book is because. It, this is a story that clearly called for some a, a longer look, right? Um, it, I mean, there, there, it's confusing. It's, it's just a confusing story, um, especially when you're taking it in in this iterative way. When you're just seeing like kind of a micro headline here and a little update there, and there's so many names and there's, um, um, you know things that a lot of us hadn't thought of before, like, you know, water treatment, you know, Mm -hmm. or um, how pipes work and, uh, uh, you know, and just figuring out how to trace accountability, you know, in this, you know, it's it's just, there's a lot of confusing pieces. And so what I wanted to do is, um, you know, yeah, bring it together. I'm so glad to hear that it it felt like that for you, you know, because I wanted to, um, um, you know, kind of pick up all the little pieces that are out there and, um, you know, connect them in a narrative that uh, not just made sense, but also, you know, was elevated in a way that you could feel you could feel like the emotion of the story, too. Right. And, and of right. this place, you know, so um, which can sometimes be lost in, in, in some of the news dispatches, even ones that are have somebody, you know, telling their own story or something like that. It's just it's it's. Um, this is like, you know, for people in Flint, it's um, not ex- this is something that is experienced, you know, in a day to day to day way. Um, and so I, I wanted to give, you know, readers some 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 of the sense of that, some of that sense of how mm-hmm. everything that happened comes in context of what happened before. Yes. Oh, it does. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you make an excellent point. If you live in Flint and if this is the source of your hydration and your life, you're living it every time you're thirsty, every time you need to bathe. Like you, that's, you have that's to think about it all the time. I, I mean, I constantly. stayed there. I would stay there for, um, you know, I think a couple of weeks at a time, you know, mm-hmm. and it it's it's amazing how many times you have to like you have to remember something you know like oh like when you're at the coffee maker you know for example or when you're like putting in water uh for a pot to i don't know make new pasta or something uh or you know you know like there's people who are worried about i'm thinking especially 2016 which is when i spent the most time there so this is like pretty early after you know mm-hmm. a lot of this had really peaked in the spotlight but people were worried about you know 
watering their garden and then eating the vegetables out of that garden or the water they gave their pet or, um, you know, there are people who had uh, crock pots in their bathrooms so they could heat bottled water and then pour that into the bathtub so they could take a warm bath, you know, because they didn't trust what Mm -hmm. was coming out of, you know out of the faucet there. I mean, it, you know, and, and then so in the stress of this, you know, the stress of this is like, is, is, is something that like, we can't quite measure. I I don't think, but it's, it really takes a toll and it's just exhausting. And, and, you know, at a certain point, people don't want to talk about it anymore. You know what I mean? Like it's important, you know, but like they also want to like live the other parts of their life um, while not losing sight of this, while not wanting other people, you know, to lose sight of this, knowing it's very important, but also just feeling hungry to just live a normal life yes well it's it seems like it would be an all-consuming part of living in flint and and it was then when the crisis was at its peak but i i can't imagine it's entirely resolved now yeah that's when people say this is i mean it's a matter of dispute right Right. (laughs) so the state um after several rounds of tests that showed the lead levels in flint being um, about on par with where they are in other communities, though no amount of lead is safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, they decided uh, to stop providing bottled water distribution. They did that in April. Mm-hmm. And a lot of folks in the community are upset about that because they felt like that should have continued until all the damaged pipes are replaced, which is going to go on until 2019 or 2020. Uh, and just besides that, lead isn't the only thing people are worried about. There's a number of other contamination issues and people just have questions. They're uncomfortable with the fact that the same people who are saying it's is safe now are the ones who said it was safe before. Um, and, and you, and you can understand where they're coming from. Like, even if we take the state at its word and it's, and, and it's a hundred percent true that the water is safe to drink, uh, from the tap, even without a filter, like, let's say that's true. Um, you can't blame people for being very cautious here. There's some skepticism. Right. Like, I mean, like there's some deep earned. trust that was broken and it's, it's yeah. just not going to be turned on overnight. Yeah. Well, I think your book does a wonderful job of explaining that sort of day-to-day feeling, um, which I think was striking to me because as a person who who does not live in Flint, but who cares about the issue, yeah. as I said, um, you know, you see these headlines or you see things that, um, you know, I think could be a little bit misleading. You see the little soundbite. So, you know, you heard a lot for a while, it's not the water, it's the pipes. Or you heard, you know, you would hear these little things that kind of explain it in a quick way. And I don't think it can be. I mean, obviously, yeah. you don't either. Well, what I hope is that when people read this, they feel empowered to, you know, understand the ongoing headlines that continue to come out of Flint mm-hmm. and also feel, you know, more, um, you know, engaged and knowledgeable about their own communities, you know, like they can ask better questions about, you know, water in their own communities and also not just water, but the other issues that come up too, like, um, you know, other Environmental, environmental injustices that might be playing out that aren't directly related to drinking water, but nonetheless mm-hmm. sh- share a pattern with what we see in Flint um, or uh, questions about access to democracy and voting rights, you know, and all these other things that were really pertinent with how things unfolded in Flint. I would like I hope readers I hope readers can um, take that back into their own communities and um, how they engage with their own public officials and their own neighbors. Yeah, I think they will. It's a motivating book as well. Oh, that's great. Um, So one of the things I'm really glad that you started to talk about a moment ago was the time that you spent in Flint. As I was reading it, I mean, I I know you to be a person who has lived recently in Detroit and in Ann Arbor, but I didn't know you to live in Flint. And I wondered um, just personally what that experience was like, sort of going into that community as 
um, I think it's fair to say, an outsider in some ways, um, and asking a vulnerable community to, to share some of their most difficult, most frightening experiences. Yeah. And then how it felt to be there. You were, you had, you, you weren't there permanently. You hadn't moved to Flint. I didn't. So uh, yeah. It was only, out. yeah, so, I, I went back repeatedly, but I think the longest I stayed at any given time was not more than two weeks. Mm-hmm. So how did that mm-hmm. feel? Well, I, I mean, I definitely, I, I actually thought about, I, I actually thought about moving there and had that, uh-huh. this like Ann Arbor fellowship thing not happened. I might have, uh-huh. <laughs> but, uh, it, it didn't work how it, it worked how, out, how it worked out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, um, I, there is a few things. I mean, so yeah, how do you, how do, how do I build trust? Like, especially because there's so many people who are just, it was just a deluge of, of folks who had, were coming to Flint all at the same time. Many with good intentions, you know, volunteers and researchers, academic researchers, um, public health folks who just wanted to help out and share their expertise, jur- journalists, filmmakers, documentarians, um, celebrities <laughs> but and, and a lot of people who like i think had nefarious purposes too people are trying to just profit off of this like sell gadgets and kind of exploit these fears or just use the spotlight that was in this on the city for a while um to promote themselves in one way or another so i i you know c- coming in that you know coming into something like that like how do i show myself to be one that is worth trusting, you know, in the midst of that, um, especially it's, it's, it was challenging because I, I am an outsider. I am a white person. I am, um, um, somebody who doesn't have an affiliation as a journalist. So I didn't have that sort of instant credibility that comes with saying, I'm a, I'm here from the Detroit free press, or I'm here from the New York Mm -hmm. times. Um, you know, and, and people, one of the first people questions people would ask when I, uh, wanted to talk to them for this book was, you know, well, what's your angle? You know, what's mm-hmm. your angle on this book? And especially in the early days, I was, you know, I didn't have an angle. I mean, I had questions and I had ideas. I'd written some articles that were out there and I was happy to share, but I was really trying to understand what was going on. And I was very open minded. I was like, just you tell me what the truth is. My, you know what I mean? Like, tell me, tell me what the story is. What should I be paying attention to? Yeah. Um, but that, I think that question, you know, that response also, that was the truth, but it also made people think I might, was being a little cagey, (laughs) you know, you know what I mean? Like they're like, "Hmm, you know, who's this lady, you know, she's writing a book. I don't Mm -hmm. know her. She's not from here. Mm -hmm. And she's saying she doesn't have an angle, but maybe she's just, you know, not being forthright with me. doesn't have an angle? Right. right. Uh, You know, they're guarded and and they have every right to be. Um, So I think, you know, the only thing for me to do was to, first of all, just be as present as I could. You know, Um, I would go to Flint even on days when I didn't actually have anything in particular to do there, just to work from there, just to be, just to go to events, just to wander around. You know, just, I think it was important for me to just kind of absorb what I could about the feeling of the community but also i think it was important to be just visibly present to show that i wasn't just kind of flying by and i was there you know Mm -hmm. um and also it you know i helped to start building relationships in a way that i could um you know start that facilitated introductions you know so you know the lady whose house i stayed at when i was there i could be like oh i'm staying at jan's house and they'll be like oh i know jan you know (laughs) she's great you know it's a bit of a small town isn't it yeah i mean it's it's like is um, that fair to say it it, it's there is a lot of um i think it's bigger than people realize they're like we talk Mm -hmm. a lot about how much population it's lost so people forget that there are almost a hundred thousand people who do live there and a commuting 
population that's much higher. But in um, the outer yeah. suburbs, right? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, yeah, there's, um, there is a, you know, people seem to know each other. There, there's mm-hmm. like a not many, you know, um, uh, people are connected. You know, in chains. Yeah. You know, you can. It doesn't take you long to f- realize you all know each other. Has, th- <laughs> has this? Um, crisis. I, I was trying to think of the, the w- one word and I failed to uh, encapsulate the whole issue. Has this crisis in Flint brought people together in new and different ways? I, I, I'm yeah. not saying, oh, I mean, upside yes is, but, and no. Yes. Yeah, yes. In the sense, no like, yes, in two ways from what I've heard from other people. Like I remember one person telling me how, you know, within Flint, uh, this, this is like an experience that everybody has shared in a way that, in a way that's different than even the challenges that have happened in the past. And, mm-hmm. you know, and she found herself, you know, standing in line at, at the bank, somebody who's telling me the story and somebody makes some passing comment about some news item that happened and everybody at the bank, rich and white um, and poor and black and, you know, yeah. and like and everybody or different combinations. Yes. And they, um, and they, and they all like sighed in exasperation in unison. And she felt so, <laughs> you know, she, it made her feel like, you know, um, bound to neighbors that she hadn't felt as connected to in the past, you know? And I think that's a lovely thing. And people, yeah, um, a lot of community organizers that were working in very different ways uh, joined together in something they called the Coalition for Clean Water to um, help bring this to light, you know, in Mm -hmm. uh, 2015. And they did, uh, they, they, they put aside, you know, differences and um join tactics and uh succeeded it's like they succeeded i mean and like and that's pretty inspiring too i think i think that's probably one of the most unsettling parts of this you know we try to always explain in our minds injustice you know and and figure it out but this was absolutely it's everyone that was in flint right? yeah Every yeah i mean person. everybody was affected i mean it, it, there is um you know, not everybody is, was exposed equally, mm-hmm. but everybody, everybody lost their voting rights. Everybody mm-hmm. had um, uh, contaminated drinking water that ultimately they couldn't trust. And everybody is very interested in uh, justice uh, for themselves and for their neighbors. Yeah. And everyone faced uncertainty about how safe the water was and right. what's what's next. I want to talk a little bit more about that inequity between... Um, Flint residents who were impacted more and less uh, when we come back from our next musical bri- break. Uh, we're talking to Anna Clark, who's author of The Poison City. I'm Amanda Yuli. This is The Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Let's hear a song. This land is your land This land is my land From California Well to the New York Island From the Redwood Forest To the Gulf Stream waters for you
That was Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. That's a nice choice. Thanks, Anna. Yeah. One reason I picked that is because, first of all, it's just a great song. (laughs) It is a great song. I sort of wanted to hear more. It's so catchy. (laughs) Um, And also because I I love, you know, that's one of the themes of the book is uh, the common good, right? You know, and uh, how do we create uh, civic spaces that are inclusive and equitable? Yes. Thanks for shining a light on that Mm -hmm. with your book, The Poison City. by the way, I want to thank our engineer for the day is Frank Uli at the board, making all of these songs and all of this uh, good stuff happen through your radio. Um, and I want to turn back to you, Anna, and ask, um, the book has been out for a few weeks now. How has it been received um, both in Flint and then in the wider world? I'd love to get your perspectives. Uh, it, honestly, that's it's a good question. I'm still kind of trying to take it in and <laughs> take its measure. Um, I mean, it's still it's uh, it's it still feels to me, um, pretty new, but it's also exciting because I am beginning to get feedback, right? You know, both from mm-hmm. folks who are excruciatingly familiar with the story, as in Flint, yes. and also those who, um, you know, have this sort of, you know, uh, care about it, but I have, have a kind of a foggier memory of what happened and maybe have never been to Michigan, let alone Flint, mm-hmm. um, and are, are, are like, wait, what was that again? Mm-hmm. What, you know? Um, and so so it's interesting to see what people notice, right? Like what they take away from it. And um, honestly, it's been really encouraging. I mean, I was telling you before the show that it's been really cathartic <laughs> for me to mm-hmm. ha- be able to have conversations with folks about all this that has been, um, you know, or that is in a lot of ways just been weighing on me, you know, just a lot of these stories. I love, I love kind of bringing it back out there. I love reminding people that, um, this is a thing that happened, that it matters, that it's ongoing in so many Mm -hmm. ways. And that, um, while it might be, uh, comfortable for us to, other the story and think that, oh, that's mm-hmm. just a terrible thing that happened over there or to those people, those kind of people sometimes mm-hmm. in loaded language, uh, that, that um, really this is something that all of us need to reckon with one way or another because uh, different shapes of the same monster are often brewing in our own communities. Um, in Flint, you just, you just uh, in Flint, I think um, folks are have really uh, signaled that they're glad that people are still paying attention to it. Right. Like they're, mm-hmm. I think one of the concerns is that now that, you know, sort of that big spotlight, that big glaring spotlight in Flint has kind of moved on and moved away and national politics are consuming every last bit of attention. Any of us can muster, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're, 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 they're a little concerned that, um, yeah, they'll have just being forgotten, even when so much is still unresolved. So um, from what I've heard from folks, they're glad to um, that this is an opportunity to kind of bring it back up. That's good. That's good to hear. Um, do you have any events planned in Flint or have you already done? Yeah, we did a, a pre-launch launch in Flint. <laughs> we did um, before the book was out. Uh-huh. We um, decided we were going to give a chance. Uh, we're, I wasn't going to do a reading. I mean, they know what happened to them. They, they're the ones who taught me. Right. <laughs> right. I'm not going to, you know, yeah. I'm not going to sell them the book either. Mm-hmm. You know, so we, I set aside um, and the publisher helped help make this possible. <laughs> we set aside um, a um 
a hundred plus books to give away to the Flint community for free. And we had an open house at uh, Tenacity Brewing, which is uh, the first and only brewery in Flint in a repurposed uh, firehouse mm-hmm. on Grand Traverse Street. It's lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, people could uh, come. They could pick up a free book. Um, I talked for a little bit. There's this fantastic poet from Flint named Jonah Mixon Webster who um, gave a performance and uh Really, it was an opportunity to say thank you um, for people who um, have shared their stories with me and connected with me um, over the years. And also, you know, an opportunity for folks who I've never met, who heard this was coming out, who might be a little skeptical to just come and see what it's up. And before before it was officially published, I thought that was important to give that community a chance to see it first. Um, I there's also going to be. the Society for Environmental Journalists is having its national conference in Flint. Oh. Um, that's going to be coming up in October, and that's another opportunity to kind of share a story it's a there. Perfect connection, yeah. There. yeah. And there's also a wonderful bookstore in Totem Books. And if anybody at Totem Books is listening, I'd love to also come visit you and do a reading <laughs> there. <somewhere. laughs> that sounds like a perfect yeah. opportunity. Um, well, good. You know, we we touched on this before the last musical break, but I wondered if you could elaborate. Um, one of the things that I enjoyed about um, how you sort of make the case in the book is um, that you you really connect systemic racism to how um, this crisis played out for the people of Flint. And um, I don't think that that's a part that's widely understood. Again, unless people have, you know, heard that four or five word phrase put together <laughs> and it's like, it's sort of like the, oh, it's the pipes, not the water thing where you use, oh, it's systemic racism. But it's very seriously, um, deeply connected historically and otherwise. And I wonder if you could talk yeah. about that piece and help our listeners understand how that's... That that, that's a that's a huge part of this book, um, and uh, because it's a huge part of what happened. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, what I talk about is how you know Flint, um, which had this history, this ignoble history of being literally the most segregated city in the North and the third most segregated city nationwide, um, a city that uh, even as it was growing, 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 you know, in, um, with one of the world's most powerful industries, um, its population was, you know, uh, soaring, um, including, um, with African-American migrants from the South, um, the segre- the, the lack of fair housing and other equal opportunities really reached a breaking point in the 1960s as it did in many other, uh, cities. And, uh, uh, through a, a variety of twists and turns, you know, um, Flint ended up being the first city in America to pass a fair housing ordinance by popular vote, which only by 30 votes. Uh, it was it, it was wow. a wild story. And it's in and, and, and places fair places where fair housing ordinances had come up for vote and failed include cities we're used to thinking of as more progressive ones like Seattle and Tacoma and Berkeley. And um, and Flint and, you know, uh, what ended up, you know, being this like pioneer, which is amazing. But uh, less than two years later, the city, the U.S. Census records its first ever drop in population Um, after again, like many other cities, after um, a lot of civil rights victories, you know, fair housing, as well as school desegregation, as well as just increased numbers of African-Americans, people's white people (laughs) started leaving Um, Mm -hmm. and they were supported in these choices by um, urban policies, federal and uh, statewide that were incentivizing the growth of suburbs at the expense of core cities. Um, This 
led to this. This is the beginning of the disinvestment that sets um, a city like Flint up to fail in so many ways, you know, to it's what made it vulnerable even before a water crisis happened. And it's also um, literally made the water better in the sense that uh, because these pipes were corroding, um, uh, the the water that sat stagnant in um, areas that had more vacancy was likely to get more concentrated with lead and other toxins by the time it reached a tap. So neighborhoods in Flint that had more vacancy than some of the um, um, some other ones were more likely to see the you know orange and brown discolored water mm-hmm. that became famous. That that color was actually corroded iron. You know, also in the infrastructure, yeah. lead was invisible. And those neighborhoods <laughs> that were uh, more vacant were neighborhoods uh, with more poverty and more people of color. For the I most think part. yeah, that's a, that's is a that right? pattern that's like hard to um, ignore. I mean, it, Flint is um, it's like fifty seven percent African American today. It does have a large white population and a mm-hmm. smaller but robust Hispanic population, mm-hmm. um, and ever. And again, everybody was affected. But of course, you know, as is so often the case, you know, um, uh, these more vulnerable communities are, in fact, more vulnerable um, neighborhoods, you know. And Mm -hmm. and also I I, I really tried to kind of show how I think uh, the city, even though it has like a 40 percent white population, including including some, you know, really well, you know, people who make money it's not just poor white people Certainly. the city the city as a whole is sort of racialized as black i think in the way the state sees it um and uh why do you think that is do you have i, mean, I think it's a, i think it's a, i think it's an extra extension of the days of redlining mm-hmm. um so in, you could have a black neighborhood or a white neighborhood but you can't have both mm-hmm. and if you did have if if even like one or two um black people move into a white neighborhood that neighborhood's done you know it's mm-hmm. racialized as black and i think we're seeing the same thing on a citywide basis you know mm-hmm. um so uh both flint and detroit for example are majority african-american uh, cities but detroit's much more so than flint um it has like an 80 some percent uh african-american population but both cities are seen as you know black cities and they are they, you know they are of course you know and that's seen as a negative um right. by people who have power and w- mm-hmm. the 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 life and death consequences of that play out again and again and again they do um, so you were just sort of edging into um, something I mentioned before, which is the notion of blame uh, in, the, in this. And I'm not in any way asking you to to cast it. Um, in fact, what I found really admirable about the way you lay out this whole um, situation very factually is that you seem to be extremely even handed. <laughs> um, and so I wonder if you... I wonder how you did that, first of all, and if that reflects um, the journalist in you or if that reflects um, anything else, or if you want to just sort of expand on that even-handedness. Sure. Um, well, I, I definitely put the majority of the attention in this book on st- the structural crimes here, like the structural racism uh-huh. and um, how uh, environmental justice plays out in a pattern that um, um, that that embodies that that manifests that so i you know so that um that given putting the attention there i get i think like leaves less room to pick out certain individuals you know mm-hmm. because um I'm, I'm trying to make the case that 
even if somebody didn't do something intentionally, mm-hmm. it's still a violence, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, because it, like that neglect is not a passive force in these communities. It's an aggressive one. Um, it's it's sort of like the lie of like colorblindness, you know, uh-huh. like it just because um, it's not, quote unquote, on purpose and explicit um, doesn't mean um you know, does it doesn't mitigate it? You know, that's it's not an excuse. Um, and this, likewise with lead, like just because we can't um, see it, just because the pipes are underground, doesn't mean it's not causing harm, active, real, tangible. Yeah. We harm. should be thinking about it. We should fact. be thinking yes. about it, right? So, the, so I just like so some of the what the even handness might be like. I think just like putting my focus on um, on, on the structures that um, made this crisis happen and looking at this institutionally. Um, but just in a, a, a um, I guess a shorthand way, I think it's pretty plain to see. And a number of investigative committees have already, you know, come to this conclusion. The majority of responsibility lies on the Michigan department of environmental quality. Um, and, uh, they had the role for, they had the responsibility for supervising this drinking water switch. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones who um, uh, permitted this uh, lack of corrosion control treatment and uh, the upgrades to the treatment plant and so on. And it had an especial responsibility, I would say, given that the state also had um, unusual authority in Flint with an emergency manager. The emergency manager right. Um, and there's a number of officials with the MDQ that are currently facing criminal charges um, related to this. Right. I was going to say that's sort of playing out in the courts. So <laughs> yeah. You can stay we'll, out of the we'll find We'll find out there. a lot more, I think. I think there's a lot more as to be well. revealed. As well. Uh, we're speaking to Anna Clark, who's author of The Poison City, and this is The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. Anna, do you want to, after the break, maybe read a short selection? Do you have something chosen? I would be happy to. Very good. Well, let's hear um, the next selection and hear you read after that. Okay. Okay. listening to the living writer show and we have anna clark here with us um do you want to introduce the selection that you're going to read sure um well i i i'm i'm taking a left turn here (laughs) and i decided (laughs) i was going to read something from uh, a little a middle of the book that's not um flint specific exactly but looks more at the history of lead which is something that i was learning about as i was writing this book and i think it's just wildly fascinating so this is just a little bit of that Thank you. The old alchemist believed lead could be spun into gold. It was one of the base metals that men fiddled with for generations in fire-lit rooms, using the techniques of chemistry to transmute the elements of the earth. Back then, there was scarcely a difference between wizardry and science. 
Sir Isaac Newton, the force behind modern physics and calculus, was an alchemist, though he practiced it illegally and under fanciful pseudonyms such as Jehovah Sanctus Unus or Jehovah the Holy One. For about three decades, he copied recipes in his notebook for the mythical philosopher's stone that was believed to be the key to curing ill health and transmuting metals. He riddled his language to keep the recipes secret by, for example, giving earthly elements the names of the gods. Iron became Mars, gold became Sol, and lead became Saturn, the ringed planet then believed to be at the farthest edge of the solar system. But for all the experimentation, lead persistently stayed lead. Alchemists weren't the only ones who wished lead to be something it was not. A natural element found in the Earth's crust, the bluish-gray metal isn't hard to extract from rocks. It often comes aside, alongside lustrous silver, which was being mined anyway, so it was natural to look for ways to use it. Lead is soft enough to scratch with a fingernail, but it's dense and stable. It's malleable, durable, abundant, and far less vulnerable to oxidation than iron. Lead pipes are flexible enough to bend through an underground landscape of tree roots and cellars, but sturdy enough to last a long time, two qualities that made lead popular in drinking water systems. Mixed with paint, lead gives a boost to the color, helping it to shine and stick. As part of a gasoline formula, it makes the engine run smoothly. But unlike some metals, such as copper and zinc, lead has zero health benefits. Indeed, it is toxic to humans, even to the point of death. So, I yeah, I, I, I give sort of an extended sequence here. Um, I kind of go on about how you know, just our human's relationship with this metal, you know, it's so useful and we so wanted it to be something it wasn't, was not, you know, we wanted to figure out a way to make it work for us. Um, and, um, we've, uh, we, we, <laughs> we hit the limits of it again and again and again and again. Um, <laughs> this is not the first lead water crisis. No, it's not the first lead water crisis. And also, I mean, there's, you know, we like, you know, we put lead in our, paint in our homes we're struggling with that to this day you know like how it, it's how it affects people lead the leaded fuel is no longer sold but um it you know it's it's it it spreads so much of this neurotoxin throughout our environment that it's still in our soil in our in our natural light you know wildlife um which means you know we're often exposed to it just in the outdoors um and it's um and it's and it's and it's bad for us. <laughs> it's bad, especially for children, because they, their little developing bodies can absorb up to five times as much lead than uh, adults from the same amount of exposure. Um, and once it gets into their blood, it, the, it then moves on to their tissues and um, and uh, bones and it stays there, you know, and n people experience the consequences of it differently. But uh, for those who um, are really affected by it, um, it can you know, it just causes so many health far health harms and, um, um, you know, can behavioral issues and mental issues, like brain issues, you know, like your ability to understand and learn um, and uh, impulse control, a number of things like that. And for adults, it's dangerous, too, especially um, with fertility and reproduction issues. It can cause, um, 
you know, miscarriages and stillbirths and, you know, it, it, I mean, it's, it's really, it's really, it's bad, you know, and, and has been for some years and, it has, and we know this that it's bad. and we know this and yeah. this is like, and this is, and this is, this section kind of like looks at that, how, I mean, even you can find old, um, you can find records of thousands of years ago in Egypt where lead was talked about as a murder weapon. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, you're quoting some old science here when it's, you talk about how dangerous lead is. It's not like it's it's in, it's it's indisputable. Like we know the public health standard for lead is zero, yeah. but the fact is we did build, you know, for a variety our of reasons, that we way. build our cities out of them, out of this inside and out. And um, and one thing I hope the book inspires and the Flint water cra- crisis uh, galvanizes us um, to is to really like build up a political will to take it seriously. And even though it's expensive and complicated, um, if we make it a priority, um, um, then, you know, maybe we can actually do something about it and we, we will all be healthier and happier at the other end of it. <laughs> um, optimism. Yes. Yeah, I believe it. It's <laughs> Good. worth it. Good. We need it. Um, I wonder if you could spend a moment and tell us um, what's what's it like in Flint now? What's happening in Flint now? Just kind of, you gave a little bit before, but sort of a status update. And then what can people do, our listeners that um, care about this issue and that want to do something or know more? I love both these questions. Oh, good. Um, well, first, some updates that have nothing to do with the water per se, but just things, you know, just kind of the feeling in, um, in uh, Flint. Uh, there has been kind of a... Uh, a jolt in a lot of development stuff, like redevelopment stuff that's been happening. There's been, um, you know, a, a historic theater that had been downtown that had been vacant for 20 years, just got a huge renovation and just reopened a few months ago. The Art Museum, the Flint Institute of Arts, which is amazing. Just That's a stunning place. It's amazing. And they, and they just got a huge um, expansion, extension with this like beautiful glassware connection. And uh, they, they now have this sort of like, you know, maker space that, you know, people can see artists at work. It's so cool um there's uh you know there's there's been a lot of um activity you know um happening which that hasn't been seen in a long time lear corporation is going to be opening um a facility there bringing some you know auto related jobs to the city for the first time in a very long time uh some of the huge abandoned factory spaces that have been a plague on the city for so long uh one of them in particular chevy uh what chevy in the hole is going to become chevy commons this like beautiful park space um uh that's getting a lot of um um you know they're doing things like planting trees to get toxins out of the soil from its old you know mm-hmm. auto auto uh history um there's there's amazing things happening you know and 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 it and it hasn't come easily um so i just want to kind of shout that out for like the residents who have been making this so even while this water crisis has hindered their efforts in a thousand ways um and if folks haven't been to flint in a long time um you know they should go check it out because i think they could really have a good time there <laughs> um i love that answer your answer of what to do is go to flint right? go to flint like spend I mean, some it's, money it's and great support town. the community yeah, and enjoy I mean, what What's yeah, there? yeah. Like these people, they're like they're, they're residents, small business owners, like people who have been not just staying by the community, um, but uh, championing it. Um, I, I think I think it's worth paying attention to what they're doing. Um, I I've, I'm genuinely like astounded by it and inspired by it. Um, and it's fun. I like I like hanging out. Like the book might be done, but I'm not done hanging You're out. You're not with done Flint. with Flint, are you? <laughs> <laughs> um, that said, there are still challenges, yeah. absolutely, and um, and they're. Um, undefined and long-term in ways that 
are hard to fathom in some ways, you know, like how, how, how will these kids grow up an entire generation exposed to this, like uptick of lead, um, in their drinking water. Uh, some of the things that have been happening are like, you know, sort of expansions of health coverage, um, have, you know, uh, there's, um, some new charter schools, I think that are opening that are, um, you know, in brand new buildings um, that are going to be sort of like wraparound schools in a lot of ways with like teachers and staff that are like especially, you know, trained to um, recognize, you know, the signs of, you know, lead poisoning or special needs and, and be able to serve them and also, you know, serve the ones, give great educations for all, you know, whether or not, you know, the kids are manifesting some um, symptoms of this. You know, there's been a number of efforts like that that are great. Um, if folks want to do things to help, I do think, you know, just generally like going to the community acquainting yourself with it if you're not already like um building relationships there supporting it um um with your dollars I th honestly I, I don't think that can be underestimated um, um also if people want to do something that's you know sort of explicitly helpful for um you know, community organizations that I think are doing a lot of good work. Um, some of my favorites are ones that I write about in the book, actually. Like one is um, working in the Civic Park neighborhood in Flint. Um, they're associated with the Joy Tabernacle Church, but they're called Urban um, Renaissance Ministry. Um, what they're doing in this neighborhood that had been built as a segregated General Motors developed, you know, community um, that one that has been hard hit by a lot of vacancy and a number of other issues. They're really reimagining what a city can look like that is inclusive and just. And they're um, they're doing things like repurposing vacant houses to um, meet community needs. So like one house will be the health house where you can get a number of wellness needs met. Another house is the agriculture house where um, you can do... Um, urban farming and community gardening on the lot outside, the vacant lot outside, and you can go inside, you can learn canning in the kitchen. Um, they're, they've been um, a, a pretty key resource for water access, water distribution, which the residents are doing themselves now, um, again. With bottled water. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. um, bottled water for folks who, um, especially folks, seniors, things, you know, people are more vulnerable. Um, they they do great folks. They do great work. And, um, oftentimes, you know, in, um, with limited means. So they're a great one to support. And also, you know, places like Burston Fieldhouse, a neighborhood nexus for youth on the North side is doing good things. There's, um, a community magazine called East Village Magazine, all volunteer run. I think, um, that's, uh, they, they do wonderful work in, um, chronicling the, um, what's happening in the in the city um informing their neighbors um they've been doing it for 40 years they're really good at it they could use always use more help so um the book is the poison city and we're speaking to anna clark today um it's been such a joy to have you um talking about this book and the process of your writing it um thank you for sharing that with us thank you so much this is great you're wonderful amanda oh, oh, <laughs> thanks, thanks for being here um so before we go a, a couple questions i ask many many of our writers who come on what are you working on next i know it's so soon your book <laughs> just came out but what are you writing now and what are you reading now oh that's so good that's good questions okay um well writing like truly i um 
I'm not. I'm not up on that yet. <laughs> yeah, I, break I is well deserved. I, 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 if the I, answer is a break, yeah, that's okay. I, I am. I am. I'm kind of taking a break right now. I am excited to write again, both about Flint and about completely different stories. Yeah. But I, um, I think, uh, yeah, I think I need the like restorative space of yeah. you know taking in other people's stories. So reading has been robust lately. That has been very <laughs> exciting. Um, I, uh, I read a. I've, I've been a fan of Alice Monroe for ages, but just last week I read um, um, I, her very first collection of stories, her very first book called Dance of the Happy Shades, um, published 50 years ago uh, this year. And it's so great. It's so wonderful. She's just a wonderful. I read that one. She's amazing. Like there's some of the great. some of the stories I'd read before in other anthologies or but you can tell that they belong in this book together. together. And especially for those of us in the Great Lakes region, you know, because it's it's. It's um, I think it's definitely a two read, you know, it's a mm-hmm. it's a because most of these stories have some connection to the, you know, small towns on the Lake Huron on the Canadian right. side, you know, right. and there's so much that is so familiar. It's almost unsettling back to water. I love how you <laughs> yeah. you brought that back. I think we're out of time. So we will say thank you again, Anna Clark, and we'll hear our last song and see you soon. Thank you. Wait in the water Wait in the water, children Wait in the water When my God's gonna trouble the water Come on and wait in the water You gotta time for move your ass our first exercise consists of three parts one knee lifts two swing step a step ball change and three double beat jumping jacks ready begin toe knee toe lower heel toe knee toe lower heel one two three four toe knee toe and swing it change step ball change step ball change step ball change one two three four swing it swing it swing it swing it toe knee toe lower heel toe knee toe lower heel one two three four toe knee toe swing step swing it swing it